Three of the scriptures to which I will make reference as we proceed this morning are listed for you in the bulletin, but I will read those scriptures for you in the context of the sermon. So look with me to the Lord in prayer, if you would. Father, we uh, ask now that you would um, bless us, open our ears to be able to hear your truth, change our hearts, and enlighten our minds. Father, may we be your people, may you be our God, and may those around us know it. May they be fully aware of it because of our words and because of our deeds, and then use us, use us to extend your kingdom into all the world, into the uttermost parts of the earth. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if April showers bring May flowers, what do May flowers bring? Pilgrims. Get it? Come on, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, really. April showers bring May flowers. May flowers bring pilgrims. Huh? Oh, come on. I thought it was better than that. Okay. A few years ago in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts, we walked the deck of a Mayflower replica. And aboard this small ship, small ship like the one we walked upon, in 1520, 102 people left Plymouth, England, and crossed a, a storm-tossed Atlantic. And their purpose is preserved for us in their own writing. Their purpose was to plant the first colony. Now, just hold on. To plant the first colony in the northern part of Virginia. Okay, they, they missed their mark by 300 miles, okay? You try crossing the Atlantic, Atlantic in, in that time with their nautical equipment and see how well you do, okay? But their, their purpose, their, their written purpose, was to plant the first colony for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. That's why they came. For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Now, aboard this Mayflower that we were walking upon, actors and actresses, they played the part of pilgrims, and they really did it quite well. And uh, they spoke openly and freely uh, in character of, their, uh, of the God they loved and served. Uh, they testified to seeing His hand in all the details of their journey, uh, as well as commenting upon God's watch, watchful care over them during those first two extremely difficult years in the New World. And they shared they shared with us tales of, uh, of hardship and of courage and of blessing and of deliverance. I, I found that absolutely thrilling. I, I, thought it was, I thought it was just, <laughs> it was convincing. I mean, I was transported back to 1520. But I couldn't help wondering. I just couldn't help wondering if any of the actors and actresses believed in the loving, merciful, and just God in whom the pilgrims uh, believed, the God who the pilgrims knew ruled sovereignly over all of life. 
And I just, I wonder at how many, I wonder at how many listening understood why the pilgrims would willingly face such hardships simply for the purpose of planting a colony in a, in a strange and rugged land, planting a colony for the purpose, planting a colony for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Now, I'm afraid that I assume that while most listened respectfully, most were in fact bemused by such simple faith and unthinking devotion and mindless piety. Well, during the next half century, several more colonies were planted along the coast of North America. And then, 156 years after the pilgrims landed, 56 representatives of the 13 English colonies met in Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia, and after much debate, a prolonged debate of many weeks, after much debate, they finally agreed that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And then on July 4th, 1776, with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, they pledged themselves to each other. They pledged to each other their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And together, they signed that declaration of independence. They declared that all people, that document, I should say, declares that all people are are created equal, that all people are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Strange word, inalienable. It means rights that cannot be taken away arbitrarily. Certain inalienable rights, rights that could not be taken away arbitrarily by the, by the king or the parliament in England. And these inalienable rights listed in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Most, I'm persuaded from my reading and I will be so bold as to say I have done much reading in this area. Most who signed the Declaration of Independence believed and understood that the Creator was the self-revealed God of Scripture. Not all, but, but most. Many believed that the Lord, the self-revealed God of Scripture, that the Lord was both the endower and the definer of life, liberty, and happiness. Now, there were a few. I mean, most prominently, perhaps, in our minds, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, a few who were not Christians. But even they, 
as all of the culture of that day was. Even they were strongly influenced by the truths of Holy Scripture. It permeated their thinking. It permeated their mind. It it permeated their discussions. Now, the idea that these rites are defined by the Creator, the self-revealed God of Scripture, is obviously, clearly, mostly forgotten in our day. Instead, our culture now claims the right to make words mean what they want them to mean and then to redefine those words whenever they feel it necessary. The idea that the self-revealed God of Scripture not only endows us with these rights but defines for us these rights is a foreign, forgotten idea. Now, for example, I mean, you know, I don't take any joy in listing these things, but just very quickly, I mean, the example, some would argue that the right to life, right to life gives the right, gives them the right to protect the physical, mental, emotional, and economic well-being of their lives, even if it means killing an unwanted and yet unborn child. That's what the right to life means, for most, according to the polls, in our own culture. Some argue that the right to liberty means the freedom to do whatever they want with whomever they want, whenever they want. And some some would argue that the, the right to pursue happiness means that no one has the right to, quote, unquote, unreasonably, quote-unquote, defining unreasonably, however it suits your purpose, that no one has the right to unreasonably place restraints upon their particular pursuit of pleasure. Now, by God's grace, by God's mercy, by the enlightening of the Holy Spirit as He speaks to us through His Word, I pray that we understand as I would argue did most of our founding, not all, but did most of our founding fathers. We understand that these rights, these inalienable rights, they are, these things that we call rights are in truth blessings. They're gracious blessings given to us freely by the Lord given and defined by the one by whom and for whom we were made. For example, look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, a passage we've referred to several times of late, But here in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, Moses entreats, he pleads with the children of Israel to choose life. Isn't that interesting? I mean, these people obviously are alive. He couldn't, he wouldn't be able to speak to them if they weren't alive. And now he's calling upon them to choose life. So obviously, he's calling upon them to choose a life that is more than just simply physical existence. 
Moses is pleading with them to choose the gracious gift of life, that the gracious gift of that life which is abundantly blessed by the Lord. So look back at verses 15 through 18. And this is what the Lord through Moses says to them. Moses speaking, I guess, mainly in the first person here. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Obey me, and your life will be fruitful and blessed. It will be that life abundantly blessed by a gracious and merciful God. Disobey me, and you will perish. And I know, I know, there are already some of you saying, well, at least we're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by grace. Of course we're saved by grace. So were they. You think these are better people than you? You think there's any possibility that they could keep… while you couldn't, you can't keep the law, they could keep the law? You think these are supermen and superwomen or something? Of course not. They were as dependent upon the Lord's grace and mercy as we are. They looked to the Lord who would one day bring that final and perfect sacrifice to, to make redemption for their sins. But here is the law. It shows them their sin It shows them their need of that future final and perfect sacrifice, but it also shows them how they were to live. And the Lord says to them, you walk in my way and you will know my blessing. You ignore me and you will perish. That's exactly the same today. (laughs) Exactly the same. I mean, what does it mean to obey the Lord. What does it mean to walk in its ways? It means by grace through faith to embrace Him as Savior and Lord and in His strength to follow hard after Him. That's what it means. It's exactly what it means. There's no difference here, no contradiction between who the Old Testament saints were and who we are. Obey me, your life will be fruitful and blessed. Disobey me, and you will perish. I know I harp on this, but I harp on this because I just find it so devastatingly true in our culture, in our evangelical culture. There are people who are going to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. They're going to call Him Lord, and He is going to say to them, I don't know you. I've never known you because you do that which is wicked. Don't you know somebody's going to raise their hand and say, now, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm saved by grace, not by works. I was 14 years old. I raised my hand. I went forward. You know, I signed the deal. You know, I'm in here. And the Lord will say, so where's the fruit? Where's the evidence? 
Where's the proof in the pudding? Where is it? Where is it? Obey me, and your life will be fruitful and blessed. Disobey me, you will perish. Life abundantly blessed, life this gift endowed to us by God, not just simply physical life, but this eternal and abundant life, blessed by God, is ours by knowing, serving, and obeying our Lord and King. I mean, God mercifully blesses everyone by sending His rain to water the fields of believers and unbelievers, thus providing what is necessary to sustain physical life but by grace through an obedient faith in Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, He gives the gift of a blessed and eternal life. In John 6, 63, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. That is the abundantly blessed life endowed by the Spirit is ours through hearing, believing, and embracing Jesus and His Word, the Spirit gifting us with faith in Jesus as our Creator, Savior, and Lord, and then abundantly blessing us with that life eternal. For our founding fathers, liberty meant being free from the tyranny of unjust laws. But at the same time, most of them understood, clearly understood, that true liberty required just laws. The true liberty required just laws that would govern the people righteously. They did not understand liberty to mean we should be free to live however we please. Many of our founding fathers understood, as, as do we, I pray and I hope, that the liberty endowed by the Creator is a liberty that must be exercised within the moral boundaries provided by the Ten Commandments. I mean, our forefathers believed that the proof of, that, of this claim I'm making, it is repeatedly on display in our nation's capital. I mean, did you know, did you know that as you walk up the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court, as you walk up the steps, if you look to the top of that building, you'll see there a row of the world's lawgivers. And each one of them is looking towards the central figure who faces forward, the only one that faces forward, the central figure towards which all the other world's lawgivers look. And who is that central figure looking forward? It's Moses. It's Moses holding the Ten Commandments. Did you know that the two huge oak doors leading into the Supreme Court have engraved upon them the Ten Commandments? Did you know that on the wall behind the Supreme Court justices is displayed the Ten Commandments? What were they thinking? They were thinking that true liberty must be exercised within the moral boundaries provided by those commandments. Did you know, 
the James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, and perhaps even more significantly for our consideration this morning, the man who is called the father of our Constitution. Did you know that he wrote? These are his words as he thought about this Constitution as in the process of being ratified by the states. He wrote, we have staked the whole of all our political institutions. Listen, we have staked, and I would suggest to you what Madison says here is still true today. We have staked the whole of our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, listen, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. James Madison, the father of our Constitution, later to become the fourth president of the United States. Our political institution, the liberty and the freedom that we experience, it is staked. It is staked upon a people who take seriously the moral boundaries set forth in our Lord's Ten Commandments. I suggest that most of them would agree with the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 45. Just listen. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 45, I'll walk about in freedom. I can walk about as a free man. Why? Because I have sought out your precepts. Wow. Most would have understood what James writes in James chapter 1, verse 25. This is what James writes. James writes, the one who looks into the perfect law, listen, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. And I would suggest that most understood what Peter writes, as I've listed it for you there in the bulletin in 1 Peter 2.16. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Peter writes that we should live as a people who are free. Now, in the context of Peter's epistle, in context of the New Testament Scriptures, in the context of all of Scripture, when Peter says that we should live as a people who are free, he's talking about a people who by grace through faith in Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King have been set free from sin's tyranny and power. He says to those people, he says to you, to me, to most of us gathered here this morning, he says to us, you should live as a people who are free. But then he goes on to say, you should live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Our founding fathers, this is really uh, one, of those, uh, one of those really interesting discussions our founding fathers were rebelling against the rule of an earthly king. 
And yet, most understood that freedom, that true freedom, that true liberty would be found. The blessing of living as free men and women would come to those who lived as servants of the King of Kings. Now, what about the right to pursue happiness? In Psalm 68, I make reference there in your bulletin to verse 3, but first of all, in Psalm 68, verses 19 through 20, in Psalm 68, verses 19 through 20, the psalmist, he is happy, he is joyful, and the reason he's happy and he's joyful, Psalm 68, verses 19 and 20, the reason he's happy and he's joyful is because he serves the king. The king who bears his burden, who saves him, and who abundantly blesses his life. If you read this psalm, and I I hope you will, you read this psalm, in this psalm, the, the psalmist pictures God as a warrior, as a warrior who has gone forth to battle, who has defeated all of his and our enemies. An anticipation of the victories that God would win. At the beginning of this psalm, in verse 3, the, the verse to which I've made reference in the bulletin, at the beginning of the psalm, in Psalm 80, 68, verse 3, he calls upon those of like precious faith to be glad, to exult before their God, to be jubilant with joy, genuine lasting joy and happiness comes from knowing and serving the King of Kings, the one who fights our battles, the one who defeats our enemies, the one who paid the penalty for our sins, the one who freed us from the tyranny of sin's curse and power, the one who rose triumphant over sin, death, and the grave, guaranteeing for us life abundant and life eternal, the one who, who amazingly claims us for himself, the one who gives us his good law that we may walk about in freedom, the one who equips, enables, and empowers us to live the life he created us to live. That's the source of joy. That's the source of true happiness. True joy, true happiness comes in living the life you were created to live, and you were created to serve your king, not some earthly king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So let me close with this. We're pilgrims. We are pilgrims. We are pilgrims upon whom the Lord has poured out abundantly, poured out upon us without measure the gifts of life and liberty and happiness. And as we, the church of Jesus Christ, live within the the structure of this culture with all of its problems, with all of the the issues that that just gnaw at us, The reality still exists that in all the history of the world, there's never been a people like us. There's never been a people 
who know the freedom, who know the, who, who know the freedom to, to live their life in the pursuit of happiness, which we as believers understand is to live our life in free and eager and willing service to our King. And yet we are pilgrims. We are pilgrims attempting to, uh, attempting in His strength to plant a colony for the glory of our King and the advancement of His kingdom, even in the midst of what in so many ways is a wild and rugged land. By grace through faith, we are people who know that for us he died, for us he rose again, for us he now reigns, for us he is coming again. Friday we, we celebrated the, the founding of our nation in which we yet live free to, to serve our king. Most all of our family except the Harrises were together at our son's David, at our son David's house and um, He's a pyromaniac. Um, he had about a 15-minute display of fireworks that he set off, which, of course, left all the kids dazzled, you know, just stunned. And it was a great time. It was a great celebration, uh, even though some of the things fell on their side and were shooting out sideways instead of straight. But never. Um, so we celebrated the founding of our nation. It was a great time. You know, it was, it was a wonderful time. The founding of this nation in which we are yet free to serve our King. And now, this morning, we come to celebrate that even greater freedom that is ours by grace through faith in Jesus, who is our Creator. He is our Savior, He is our Lord, and He is our King. Let's pray. Father, prepare us now as we come to this table. What we do here, may it know Your blessing, may it honor You, may You use it to equip and strengthen us, build us up in that holy faith once delivered unto the saints. May we be your people. May you be our God. May we be pilgrims in this world committed to doing that which will glorify you and will establish your kingdom and expand its borders. Father, work in and through us for your glory and for the temporal and eternal good of others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.